0: Listener Production. G'day, you know, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the 4th and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a former Victoria Police detective who dedicated years to tackling Australia's high-profile homicide cases.
1: And he just took a deep breath and took his coffee and just said, all right, I killed her. It was almost chilling that here I am, that I know this man only hours earlier had taken another life and he's trying to get into my my head and understand what makes me tick.
0: Graham Semfendorfer is a 27-year veteran of Victoria Police.
1: There's never a more important investigation than investigating the death of another human being. You'll never find a more powerful or important investigation in my view than doing that and representing the deceased and the family. From Wagga Wagga
0: he had an immediate passion to join the police. He hopped down to Melbourne when he was 20 for his academy stint and stayed in Vicpole as he moved his way through the ranks eventually becoming a detective in 2005. It's around that time we start this week's conversation. graham has been in the job for a year or so, still a very junior detective, and he's received a call about a domestic dispute. This is an extremely sad story, and one which involves a secret marriage and a tragic set of circumstances.
1: This one goes way back over to Fiji where Nileshni and um, her husband eventually, Amitesh, both grew up in Fiji. And they met there and um, Amitesh and his family moved out to Melbourne. I'm not sure when they moved out here to Melbourne. My memory's not that great, but they moved out to Melbourne for a better life. Nileshni and her family were quite poor in Fiji and they'd stayed in contact. And the idea, I guess, was for Nileshni and Amitesh to get married in Fiji and then she would be able to come out to Australia for a better life. But the thing here was that Nileshny's family in Fiji were fully aware of the, what was happening and, I guess, the arrangement, but Ahmatesh's family here in Melbourne had no idea. It was a secret. So he had told the family here in Melbourne that she was a friend and she needed somewhere to live for a while, and she's come out from Fiji, and they're just friends. So it was all kept in secret. But Nileshny was a victim of some domestic violence. With Amitesh, there was an intervention order that was made and then withdrawn. Um, she obviously wanted to exit the relationship and on this particular night, I think I remember it was like back in 06, might have been the World Cup soccer opening ceremony that night because they were big soccer fans and obviously a big worldwide event. And they would had an argument and she decided she was going to leave the house and leave the relationship and wandered off down the road. You know, he'd followed her and there'd been an argument out on the footpath and he assaulted her and um, she'd actually fallen backwards on the footpath and and hit her head on the concrete and knocked her out. So she's unconscious but she's breathing. And that seems to be where this turns very sad is that if he'd actually just checked her pulse or rendered first aid, he would have realised she's still breathing. But he panicked and thought he'd killed her and he took her down to a nearby small lake and put her in the lake. But he's put her in face first and she's drowned.
0: So she was alive at the time he took her down to the lake and but then died as a result of him placing her in the water.
1: Yeah. So he returns home to the family, obviously comes up with an idea that, you know, I'll get mum or someone with me and we'll go looking for her, pretending that she's just run away and we don't know where she is. And then he has someone with him as an alibi and they discover her body down by the water and, and obviously then police and us are called. But the whole crime scene didn't. Even the uniform members that were there, that were the first there going, No, this is this doesn't add up, this isn't right, and called in homicide and and we turned out to the crime scene and it was a very foggy night. It was a really cold time of year. I think it was around June, two thousand six. Really cold, one of those typical Melbourne can't see a couple of meters in front of you. So it was immediately to us, we were like, how, how did they actually find her body down by this creek? It wasn't a normal way to walk to find someone or look for someone. It wasn't a thoroughfare. So in his version of, oh, we, we just looked down by the water and saw her body, it wasn't stacking up because you couldn't see two feet in front of yourself. He was in custody on the suspicion of his involvement with her death. And once sort of daylight came, we were able to see a bit more of the crime scene. It could actually see some of her broken necklace that, had broken up on the footpath and I think the distance was, I'm going to say, about 50 metres to the lake and he's obviously dragged her body down there and the beads had all dropped off. She had injuries to it that were consistent with being dragged across the concrete but the, the dew at the time on the grass was still there and you could see drag marks in the dew on the grass led directly to where that assault took place. So the crime scene worked heavily against him and, and in the end there was actually forensic evidence that she'd scratched him just as she was assaulted. So she had his DNA and he had an injury on his chest. But he was, he was staying staunch that he had nothing to do with it and uh, not until we got him back to the homicide officers. So this was out in uh, Lynbrook Way, our south-east Melbourne, and a bit of a drive into the city to the homicide squad officers to interview him and had a bit of time with him and the boss at the time was you know, Graham. Well, Simf, can you go? Just go take him a, a cup of coffee or a drink. We've been a while, and we need to—you know—we need to look after these people. Still, they're in our care and custody. So, I went into the, the interview room, and he was just a broken man. You could just see it in his body language and, and everything. I think the reality of what was happening, and you know, we're talking a few hours later now. So, I think it's just all overwhelming for him. And I just made the comment to him that you look like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, mate. You just need to tell the truth, and I'm sure everything's going to be okay. And he just took a deep breath and took his coffee and just said, all right, I killed her. Wow. Yeah, it was surreal. Yeah, he he took a big, deep breath and looked me in the face and just said, yeah, all right, I killed her. And I, well, I shit myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> right. um, didn't expect that. I was just telling him that, you know, he, I could see you were stressed and that, you know, you, you, you're here and we're going to look after you. But there's an investigation. That, that was my intent, that we're going to look after you just – it's he's going to be okay. I can't remember exactly what I said to him after that. I think I was quite empathetic around, okay, yep, all right. Um, but my investigator brain's going, shit, I've got to go back and tell the boss. Yeah, yeah. I said, boss, he's just told me he killed her. And he's like, right, okay, you're doing the interview now because he trusts you and you're the one he's obviously confessed to. So there's a rapport there. And he goes, you're doing the interview. I'm like, oh, but this isn't my, you know, this is my case. He's like, well, it is now. So... Yeah, in we go with the tapes and took the full statement of the truth and, and what happened and pretty much what was explained to us uh, from it all. So, yeah, a, again, a sad set of circumstances that, you know, had he rendered first aid, it might be a very different story. But um, this one was, was just sad, or sad in regards to, you know, a, a girl coming out to want a better life in the country and this happened. So I did connect with the family quite a lot. So I went to Fiji only, I think, a few days to take statements, and we really needed to explore, I guess, the power and control of the relationship and the marriage was relevant to the case. So we went over and took statements to assess this hidden marriage and, and all that. So I met the family there in Fiji, and they were quite poor, um, you know, literally almost a tin shed, and and just a a very hardworking family that were trying to make their way in the world and give their best. So I took my statements and you know, told the mod representative as best I could back in Australia and there's was a lot of work to repatriate her to Fiji for her family to to bury her. So we, we obviously communicated a lot as best we could back then and then yeah, they saved up just about their life savings to get their father to come out and actually see where his daughter had died. He wanted to come out. So just I'm pretty sure their life savings to, to come out and do that did you have the job of informing the family? So you had
0: to do that face-to-face or had Fijian police done that prior to your arrival?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one itself. So we, um, you know, through the AFP and the liaisons, we notified the AFP and the Fijian police of her death and that we needed police, Fijian police to go and tell her. But um, the Fijian police were, you know, it's very bad news. They didn't want to deliver. So it was a few hours later that we had the sister of Naleshny ring in to our homicide officers, going, "We're hearing rumours that my sister's been killed from other family in Melbourne. Oh, Why
0: well, haven't
1: goodness. police come and spoken to us?" And are like, "Well, we have told the police many hours ago to go and see you. Why have they not and, arrived?" But and, they didn't
0: want to do it. They didn't want to sort of.
1: Uh, it was too hard. No, it was t- too tragic news to t- to tell. Oh, so dear, it was. Dear. So we we got an immediate rapport going with the family. As sad as that story is, around you know finding out from friends, that's not how you want things done. But we connected there and, and, yeah, eventually they said they'd like to come out, but they could only afford Dad to be there a short time and that was the only window available for Dad to, to go on, um, I think it was a Saturday morning. And the,
0: um, the husband, Amitesh, went to court, mm-hmm. found guilty and, uh, and... Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I think he may have been found guilty of manslaughter in the end. Uh, there was issue over his intent at the time that he struck her from memory, but eventually after his sentence was served... His um, visa or his authority to be in Australia was no longer, so he was deported back to Fiji. And I'm not sure what's happened to him since then.
0: And Graham, I think, am I right in saying you've sort of maintained some contact with the family? Is is that correct?
1: Yeah, I went uh, back to Fiji a few years later than that, um, and stayed stayed in contact with the family. You know, around anniversaries and, and different things, um, and just you know just keep touching base and checking in. And there's that connection there. So, like I said before, some families you're probably might stay away from because it's too traumatic but in this case they found a great sense of connection to me and, and to that so I, I maintained that contact and would just reach out every every year around that time and just check in how's everyone going and you know we, we celebrate her life so I went over there and, and met with them whilst I was over there on holiday and, and that was great to see them and everyone was doing well and um, they were great to, to show me that they've had some you know younger kids born into the family and and just have that real connection with them. So that's very, very humbling to to know you've had that impact on someone's life.
0: If I could take you back to 2005, You've been in the police for you know, 10 or 11 years, but I think fair to say probably a, a relatively junior detective as such, and you were involved in investigating a, a fairly gruesome homicide that occurred between uh, gentleman, Peter White, and his housemate, Stephen Hatton. Can you just walk us through that, your involvement in that, and, and, and some of those rather unique aspects of that case?
1: You're right. I was a junior detective in the scheme of things. I'd only been... I guess, a full-time detective for about three or four years and, and had found my way um, onto a crew at the prestigious Homicide Squad with Victoria. And it was literally my second day at Homicide Squad that I got the call saying, we've got a job, you've got to meet me at this crime scene. I got there first just because of the geography of where I was in Melbourne at the time to the crime scene in Ascot Vale. The regional detectives are there, they've got the crime scene done and they're all waiting for the homicide guys to turn up and they'll know what to do. And then there was me day two at Homicide and I was just, well, to be honest, I was shitting myself. I'm like, what am I? Right. I'm now in charge of all this. We're here, where's the boss, where's the team and and, and all that. But And it's you. They're all looking at you. They're looking at you, that's right. So look, we fall into um, our behaviours and our training and, and everything and then the rest of the crew turned up. But yeah, it was a very sad set of circumstances there to have these two lives connect in the way they did and obviously end in the death of another. Pretty traumatic for everyone, and particularly the families on both sides, to be honest, um, you know, to to see that.
0: And a pretty brutal death, which would have, I'd imagine, been an extremely confronting crime scene to walk into. And, you know, we we were talking off air, Graeme, that it doesn't matter how long you're in the job, none of us are really geared up to handle that stuff over and over and over. And you're walking into a scene where a a guy was brutally murdered, um, pretty confronting.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty horrific scene. I can't describe it any more than just horrific. Um, it was brutal, as you say, uh, sustained over yeah you know, a period of time. Uh, it wasn't a very quick thing, unfortunately, and you know a lot of trauma sustained. So it was pretty confronting to walk into. And you know we're talking two thousand five, pretty sure two thousand five, two thousand six, and a lot of the technology wasn't as good as what we see now. So you know you're literally in the crime scene you know, we're in the booty, so you're not treading on anything and you're having to go through and see everything with the forensic examiners because you're the one who has to interview this man over what has happened. So you've got to see it for yourself. Um, so yeah, it was pretty confronting, but probably the biggest shock in that case to me was, you know, I could tell there was mental health issues and it was quite clear, but the forensic um, nurse actually come back and said, you know, he's, he's right to be interviewed. You can interview this man around what happened with that murder. And that was a surprise to us. We thought, He's just not going to be fit for interview was the term. Um but no, they deemed he was fit and um we had to interview him over over what happened and even that in itself was something that'll stay with me forever.
0: He had a belief, did he not, that the victim whose life he took was was it, um and I don't want to sensationalise it, but that he thought there was a robot that was inside of him and he was trying to mm. is, is that is that am I am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, that's that's the understanding is that he had the belief that um robots had taken overtaken these housemates brain and he wanted to get them out for him. So just really confronting and horrific stuff. It's just sad that, that those two lives had crossed paths in that way. And and now one's lost or two are lost really. When you interviewed somebody
0: like that, and as you said, you're almost surprised in that policing role that um, somebody who was clearly with some mental mental health issues there is that an interview that was admissible at a later stage in court Graham? or was it because that would be something that you would be mindful of how admissible is this evidence going to be moving forward
1: yeah so that's why we got the forensic nurse involved to, to assess him for fitness for interview and your investigator hack goes on and you think well there's no way it's going to come back that he's fit for interview but you know it's it's a matter of does he understand the questions that were being asked and yes of course he did etc so yeah we had to interview it wasn't um didn't really play part of I guess, the end case against him because he um, did end up going into a mental institution as part of his sentence, so it didn't bear much relevance. But it was a challenging interview because he wanted to take it in a different direction altogether. Even though he did understand the questions, he was trying to steer the conversation to learn more about me. What do you want me to do? What do you think I should do? What about you? What about your life? Tell me about you. So it was it was almost chilling that... Here I am, that I know this man only hours earlier had taken an, another life, and he's trying to get into my my head and understand what makes me tick. So it was it was very different, very different interview. Through that interview process, Graham
0: did he admit any degree of guilt, or did he have a conscious memory of his actions, or where did it, where did all that sit?
1: No, he wanted to stay away from that altogether. Yeah, the challenging okay. conversations that. You know the pointy end of the stick, I guess, um, of around the murder. No, he steered well away from it and would then try and control the interview back to me. So, yeah, no, he, he knew what was going on. He knew the stakes that were there. So it was challenging. As you say, it's completely different to all the other interviews I've been involved in for murder or armed robbery where they clearly know the, the game of the police ask the questions and you give your answers or no comment or or whatever you will. But um, this was a real cat and mouse game of who, who owns this interview and who's going to own this room? So for a young detective, it was a really steep learning curve. But, yeah, you know, um, you know, we represented the family of the deceased really well. And I, th- I think as sad as an outcome it is, it's the right one that he needed treatment for his mental illness. And um, unfortunately, another one had lost their life.
0: And just on that, eventually the offender was found not guilty on the grounds of mental impairment. Is that correct? Or not guilty of murder? but did receive a uh, a nominal detention period whereby he was sent to a, I guess, a uh, a hospital for criminally insane and, and, and it was at the final outcome.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And from my recollection, I think to facility, Thomas Embling Hospital, which is um, the more serious cases of psychological issues and it was court ordered. So he was there, I think it was around the 25 years.
0: An interesting case, Graham, because, you know, as you'd know, you've been there. There, there are homicides and there are homicides. And, and here we have a, a tragic case, which on the face of it is investigated as a homicide, but all these um, v- very sad ingredients around it, with both the victim and the victim's family, but also on the part of the offender and, and their family and things such as that. So, and interestingly, as you say, Graham, really, it, we're back 2005. Goodness me, it's a long time ago, but a case that still stays with you to this day.
1: Yeah. Wow. 20 years nearly. Yeah. It does stay with you. That's right. mate. It's uh, it's hard. And at the time you're dealing with the families and you're so close with them and you, you feel a real connection with them and you've got so much empathy, but also mindful that you that I, I'm also a trigger to their trauma because of how close you were with their family member. So it's a fine line to staying in contact and whether that's a good thing for the family. And then also whether that's a good thing for yourself. So um, yeah, there's, it's a real balancing act there, but certainly definitely that one stayed with me. I think the fact that it was day two at Homicide Squad to to have such a confronting job, but knowing um, you're making a difference for, for that. And the, I guess some of the mantras of those homicide investigations is that there's never a more important investigation than investigating the death of another human being. Uh, you'll You'll never find a more powerful or important investigation, in my view, than doing that and representing the deceased and the family.
0: In a situation like this, and, it, and it's, it's unique that there is a finding that, yes, there was a homicide, a person's life has been taken, but there's a, a not guilty verdict due to mental impairment. How, how does, um, in your experience, how does the family of the victim, the family of the deceased, how does that sit with them?
1: Yeah, I won't speak specifically about this particular case, but I can say in general terms, it it's never ceases to amaze me, the strength of the families of deceased persons that have tragically been taken in homicide. The strength they have, uh, I don't know what I would have, to be honest. I look at how some of them have reacted and they understand what's happened. They want answers and they want this to never happen for someone else again. That's a lot of the theme I, I, would, I would hear. We just hope that you get to the bottom of what happened and find out the why and the who if you don't know who's committed the crime and hope that that doesn't happen to another family. But their strength and resolve that I see, you know, really serious traumatic either sex offences or armed robberies. The strength of the victims and their families is is something that always amazed me about how they were able to put these things in a place that suited them to remember their loved one or remember the person that was taken, their life was cut short.
0: And Graham, that's that that's something that, you know, again, I've had the privilege of chatting to folks like yourself in the homicide environment and it's a tough, tough area of policing to work in. It's the highest level of investigation. And there's nothing that you can do to change the tragic circumstances of what has occurred in you know in this case to their loved ones but there's that ability that you can have to do to the best of your ability to bring some closure or whatever the case may be and you're working with families at the lowest possible ebb that they will ever be at but out of that there's like you say there's that sort of there's a rewarding sort of a humanity that comes through that isn't there
1: Yeah there is and probably back to that point um we made earlier around how families react to these things. And they're more than entitled to get very angry and upset around those things. But but a lot of them are fine, as you say, it's not going to change, it's not going to bring them back. But can we get to some answers as to why or how or what can be done to make sure this doesn't happen to another family? Um, but, yeah, it's 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 um, you know, a lot of empathy has to be shown in those circumstances and a lot of skill at times, particularly when you know the, the identity of the offender is unknown. Uh, it's amazing work that gets done day in, day out.
0: You've worked in lots of different areas. Homicide, tough, tough area to work in. But I'm sensing from you, it was an area of policing that you gleaned a lot of, um I don't even know what the word is, but you seem to look back over this time as, as awful as the cases were, there was, um you've really taken something from that and, and from that work and feel that you've done something for those families.
1: Yeah, it shapes you, I guess. The work there and, and working with such professionals at the squad at the time, I was I was pretty young. I was I had to think how young I was there compared to now, nearly fifty. But I was green, I guess you'd say, and yes. then wanting to learn and learning from you know some very experienced members and on a really great crew. The teamwork and team building there, because of the pressure and because of the type of work, was you know at the time for me was uh, the pinnacle, and and still is when I look back. And but my career then had to go different ways, and I took a lot of what I learned from those senior members and you know, the homicide squad and then the armed robbery units Mm. um, to when I eventually ran my own team um, up in the country. So it it shapes you, it it forms part of you and I guess that's part of my, you know, since leaving policing of of dealing with some mild PTSD, um, of having to, I guess, own that, acknowledge it and, and, you know, continue on with that next part of your life.
0: The PTSD that you speak of must in some way or in perhaps a major way be connected back to these jobs that you're involved in and, and the amount of yourself that you give to these jobs and um, sometimes getting the result, which is in line with what the, the the family want, other times not getting that result, that must take its toll over time. And, you know, we were talking off air, weren't we, um, 27 years in the job and, 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 and just each one of these jobs that you attend, you, I guess in essence, you leave a little bit of yourself there, don't you? You know, and over time, that's that's a big toll to, to, to pay.
1: It is, yeah. And, and I think everyone's different and everyone's got their own you know, challenges and journey, if, if I can use that word, um, for, for PTSD. And, and that's whether it's all the emergency services or military or, or those that are suffering through what we're seeing now, thankfully being talked about a lot more. For me, I found you know, good diet and good physical exercise and some good confiding relationships helped. But not always was it that simple. I've definitely had my own challenges over the, over my time in the career and it takes its toll you do leave a little bit there with those jobs. And it resonated with me that it's like you, you've got a bucket and it's just filling up and filling up and filling up and all these traumatic events that, that take its toll you know, on you physically and emotionally and mentally. Eventually, if you're not doing your exercise or having your breaks and doing what, you know for some people, meditation or whatever it might be, to to have a, I guess, pull the plug on that bucket at different times. If you leave the plug in for too long, eventually it's going to get full and it tips over. And it might be something so small that actually tips you over. Um, and, and in my case, it was a, a SIDS death that probably more the time it actually made me stop. It wasn't it wasn't what tipped me over. But it made me stop and go, I'm not sure this is for me anymore. I, I think I might be done. I think this is getting a bit too much for me. Um, I'd, I'd always thought I'd be the 40, 45-year police veteran. That's, there was nothing else so I wanted to do or desired to do. But um, like a lot of people through COVID, I think things stopped because we had to stop and get, get off the treadmill. Everything changed. And I looked at life and looked at uh, myself and realised I was taking a lot of risks, um, drinking too much, working too hard, all classic signs of trauma. And, and now, as I know, a bit more around PTSD because I've been curious enough to find out, well, what, why do I do these things? Why am I behaving this way? Why is my sleep so shit? So it's, um, yeah, it was time to go, you know what? I took a break and um, that, that break ended up, man, I didn't go back. Um, I got my sense of humour back though because my boss said to me, are you coming back to work, and I said, "Oh no, I need to go see the optometrist first, boss." And he's like, "Why? What's wrong?" And I said, "I just can't see myself going back to work." <laughs> so that was a real point. To it was funny, but he made the point. He goes, "Your sense of humour's back because it had right. gone right." And yeah, you know, so they, that was a clear sign to me and others that I wasn't doing so well taking taking the piss out of yourself.
0: 2021, and you and you, and you mentioned that connection to um to COVID there. So because 21, we're right in the middle of it, aren't we? Um mm. And I, I just circling back. Just for the listeners, um, you, you mentioned that the, the Sid's death. Now, this is sudden infant death syndrome, which is the the term which is used with regards to the um, unexplained death of, of little ones. You know, little little little, little uh, to, uh, tots. And um, I think the um, the case that you're referring to, am I right? Um, was a case uh, back when you're working at uh, Wodonga, there in quite a, a tight community, and. I think um, you've mentioned when we were chatting that not only is there the, the confronting nature of, of attending the death of an infant, and goodness, you know, most seasoned police will tell you it's that, that is one of the worst jobs that you can attend. On top of that, when you're policing in, in a community that you live in and you're also policing in, in that particular case, you knew the families, you knew the little one, and was that at the time, Graham, that you felt you, you know, you used the analogy before that the bucket sort of keeps filling up? Is that when your bucket started to overflow? Was that the tipping point?
1: Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, when I look back in hindsight, it was. Um, I didn't know what I was walking into. I think that was probably the most confronting thing. I didn't, you know, I'd been called out to help because there was a junior detective there and hadn't experienced that sort of scene before and how to manage that. So, you know, you, of course you go along and you help. So, yeah, I think that was the one that probably made me stop and realise, hold on, yeah, you are displaying a lot of these risk-taking behaviours and, and, and a lot of your mates are saying, hey, mate, are you okay? And, you know, we, we, we're we good at saying that, but over time, you know, I started to listen a lot harder to that question and actually, for me, I was able to reflect and say, I actually don't reckon I am. But my counsellor now, um, she's great, can see them and, and as we say, you know, you, you, you don't let your car going 100,000 kilometres without serving, you so, but why are we prepared to let our own well-being go without speaking to someone or talking to someone? And I guess my whole thing out of it all is I tried to do it on my own for so long, like probably many others, of it'll be right and a culture of you probably can't speak up because that might be in the end of chances of promotion or your career, so there's that fear attached to it. But I think, you know, we've got to start somewhere and that journey's slowly starting. But for me, I just went, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Before I harm myself too much more, and and that's what the experts were saying, yeah, Graham's got some mild PTSD, he's not broken just yet, so let's not break him. And I guess I decided to go, let's leave that career there and and move on to something else, which I wasn't sure uh, what I was going to do, and yet here we are.
0: And a tough decision to
1: make for obvious reasons, but did
0: you know at the time that you made it that you are going to step away from this 27-year career when you made that decision, when you consciously said to yourself, "That's it, I'm done," was there a sense of relief there, Graeme? Was there a sense of fear? What was there a weight lifting off the shoulders?
1: Yeah, definitely a weight lifted. I think once I'd accepted the fact that this is done, didn't make it easy, but definitely a weight to go. Yeah, I'm 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 comfortable with that decision. And and for so long as investigator and and police and in general, you you trust your gut instinct and go with your gut. And and once I'd made that decision and and filled out the papers, my gut. Was much better. I don't. I think I was less anxious and and less you know concerned around having to go back into that world. But certainly there was a lot of anxiety around where to from here and what am I going to do? Like I was, I was yeah, I'm still a young, almost fifty year old, so I've still got a life left.
0: Yeah, and you've identified as a police officer since you were twenty, and now suddenly,
1: what do you identify
0: mm. as? I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Oh, I, I still struggle with that now when people say, "What do you do?" And getting used to saying. Um, they, when referring to police now, not we. Yes. It's just the little things I've got to yes. catch myself. So I still, I think two years later, struggle with that identity. And, um, you know, when you're in a small community that that's and everyone's only ever known you as that or your friends and family, that's all they've ever known. Like I joined at 20. So to have, you know, the best part of nearly 30 years, of that's your identity and to lose the networks of the friendships pretty much overnight as well. So, you know, there's a lot of people hopefully probably listening going, yeah, I we'll get it. It's just trying to stay positive and, and reconnect with those that are in, want to reconnect with you, um, and those that want to be part of all that is important to just keep talking and putting yourself out there because it's um, it's a hard hard journey, but you have got to keep moving forward. What do you miss most from the job, Graham? What I miss most, I, I think, I surprised myself because I've heard, asked this so many times of people that have left the job because I was coming towards the end of my career. What do you miss most? And everyone always says the people. And I used to sort of almost roll my eyes at those people that would give that answer. Right. And I'm about to give exactly that answer. <laughs> uh, it's the people. So I'll
0: sit here it, rolling my eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Roll your eyes, mate. Yeah. Um,
1: no, look, it is. It's the people. It's the networks. You get to know you, your group. Everyone's got your back. And it's the people. Um, Being part of I, that team. I don't team. miss the work. Yeah.
0: Missing the people the most. What do you miss the least? Is it that pressure, that constant pressure or what is it? What, what do you look back on and think, oh, thank goodness, I'm never going to have to do that or feel that or, or, or get involved in that again? Uh, I
1: think it's the pressure I was putting on myself to there because as a manager, then you're managing your team, you're managing their wellbeing, their welfare, um, your own risk. So just, I don't miss that pressure of having to do all that. I, I really enjoyed it and I really cared for that side of it, but it took its toll. And I think that was part of what made that bucket full at the end of the day, was carrying all that risk for so long. And and look, in hindsight, I wasn't very good at switching off and probably still not, as I said. But going on leave and still thinking about things and still checking back in with the office and maybe taking the laptop, you know, it's, you'd, switching off just means you've got to switch off. It's an interesting
0: conundrum, isn't it, Graham? because that almost obsessive-compulsive aspect to a person's personality, is probably the aspect that makes you so successful as an investigator. That's right. And yet it's the one that ironically drags you down the most and the one that you look back at and think is the one that you are most relieved to have <laughs> stepped away from. But it's a, it's a necessary aspect of, of the work that you were doing, isn't
1: it? Yeah. And particularly regionally, like there's not, the resources aren't infinite. So no one else is coming in some of those scenarios. So you're, re- you're a small team and we were a small team, so we would get in and help each other out, and we'd move rest days around to try and help, because the risk to the public was so great, so you'd say, oh, I'll work this weekend because I need to catch this guy, and we can't just leave it to one person, we've got to do it as a team. Um, but I've never met anyone since I've left the police, and, and now involved with Police Veterans Victoria, that, that says, you know what, Simph, I wish I stayed longer. I don't think I've heard anyone say that. Uh, everyone's generally, you know, probably could have called a bit earlier, but Everyone's got to trust their own gut, and it's their own time. So for me, I'm I'm really fortunate that I made the call when I did, because you know the, the next part of my life can can be positive and and really you know help people, but in a different way to what I thought my career had to be. And, and stay in the police, so I can help people otherwise now. Graham,
0: since uh, since leaving the job, there's no doubt you've been involved in some interesting um, work and activities and what have you. But none none, none perhaps more interesting than. Um, Becoming a star—I'm going to use that term on the um, on the TV show Channel Ten, Hunted. Now, um, this is a show that was probably promoted more than any other reality mm. show that I've ever seen on TV. You found yourself in the middle of this. And we won't jump straight to your Logie's appearance, uh, Graham. <laughs> but can can you have a that? That's an interesting phone call to get. And and can we talk about? Am I right in saying your initial response was probably that is not me? I have zero interest in that, and yet yeah. now you're doing it, and it's something that you've got a real a lot of benefit from. And can you just walk us through that?
1: Yeah, initially when I was first asked to have a chat with some of the producers, it was no, nah, look, not for me. I think I'm happy to to fall into a quieter life post policing. But uh, my children actually convinced me to to say yes, or at least do a um, audition, I guess as it's called. Uh, because I t- keep telling them, you know, what do you stand to gain? What do you stand to lose by what choice you're about to make? And the cheeky little thing said, so why, why aren't you going to do this, Dad? What do you stand to lose if you don't say yes to this? I'm like, oh, it's really come back to bite me now. But so I auditioned and um, was offered the role as a lead investigator. And I thought, what an opportunity to to just see what happens and learn about the industry and had no idea how big it was going to get and how much promotion, as you say, it was pretty heavily promoted and and now we've done two seasons and it's an amazing experience, an amazing team. I I really understand now what goes into producing something like that and and right from the people that do my mic every day in the tie and the audio team and the camera team and the producers and and everything that goes together, putting that show together, is huge. But then being able to use that platform, if I can call it that, to highlight the amazing work that does get done by police because in hunted we're we're replicating the, the powers of the state so we're hunting people as if they're fugitives but they're just general citizens and and some are really good at trying to hide from us some aren't but we're doing exactly what we did in policing and they're just filming it there's no it's it's the real deal there's there's no stop and there's no editing there's no you know production i guess of it it's it's what we do and there's all the frustrations and I think I swear probably too much on TV, but that's <laughs> so my mum says, but that's all right. Um, but uh, look, it's a platform to, to highlight, I guess, to everyone out there that you know the, these type of investigations that carry so much risk, like we said before, around if police get it wrong, that person could be out and do another armed robbery tomorrow may be the reason why someone actually is killed tomorrow. So the risk is real out there. And police are doing these investigations right across the country and internationally, I guess, but our countries really should be proud of what our police force does or police forces do in this space to prevent the kidnappings, prevent the murders, prevent the armed robberies and rapes. They do this every single day. But we don't tend to hear about it as a public unless it goes wrong because that tends to make... The mainstream media doesn't it so look we're using the platform to, to try and highlight and I guess tell some of our story because next time you see the the person in uniform or the detective at a crime scene that you know is working really hard to to achieve some outcomes and make the community safer to to just perhaps say thanks and not be so judgmental at times is what we're trying to say because they do an amazing work everyone does it because they want to help they want to do good and, you know, it's a really tough gig. We've we've seen everything that society can throw at us and then COVID and then fires and now floods. So all the emergency services are obviously feeling the pinch, um, but we're going to use hopefully the platform of Hunter to try and change that narrative a little and and be grateful uh, for, for what our emergency services and, and military for that case too.
0: Graeme, look, I just want to thank you so very much for uh, taking the time to drop into the Melbourne studio and... and um you know we had a few things written down that we were going to chat about but we but due to your your honesty and your candor we went down some other roads and i just i, I want to thank you so much for just being so open and honest because you know there'll be a lot of folks that, that listen to this that uh, may recognize within themselves or their loved ones some of those things that you uh, that you highlighted and um, Graham, thank you so much for your honesty and thanks for coming in for a chat really
1: enjoyed it thanks so much for for the chance to say my story and if there is anyone out there that listens and it resonates with them, uh, reach out make that call, have the courage to reach out and make that phone call and get some help
0: Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders produced by Ed Gooden and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly